0: hello and welcome to in bed with too many pillows i'm matilda primrose ingram and this episode we're talking to andrew martin lee andrew is managing director of the midnight Forest and he's also the lead artist of the comfort of things um he's an autobiographical artist and this week we're talking uh about homelessness we hope you enjoy the show get comfy kick off your shoes and get into bed Hello and welcome to In Bed with Too Many Pillows. This week's guest, we have Andrew Martin Lee. Hello,
1: hello, hello. <laughs> I'm a bit preemptive, then.
0: It's all right. You were ready. We like that. We like a bit of eagerness um, in the podcast. Um, so this week we're talking about homelessness. Yes. Do you want to give us sort of a brief introduction?
1: Um. Yeah, well, I to yourself to myself more
0: than the subject. We'll get on to that in a second.
1: Homelessness <laughs> so, is a thing, and uh, no, um, so I am Andrew Martin Lee. I'm a performance artist originally from Devon. I now live and study and work in Chichester. Um, I'm a performance artist, theatre maker, uh, theatre artist, as uh, James Baker said on his podcast, which I quite like. Um, But I normally use the phrase all-round theatre bad boy because it's absolutely not true. It makes me sound cooler than I think I am.
0: (laughs) It does make you sound very cool.
1: Excellent. Um, And in the sort of last two years, I've moved away from the kind of work I was making, which is very generic, sort of script-based, sort of three characters in a room talking about stuff. Um, And I've moved on to more um, socially conscious... Uh, I've moved on to more socially conscious work um, particularly around homelessness and that stemmed from um, a period of my life where I was homeless for 10 months during pretty much the entirety of my third year of my undergraduate Um, and through that year I went through this weird transformation of watching lots and lots of student work talking about stuff and in the audience I was really bitter living my homeless life I was watching this work and I thought it doesn't Fucking matter. There are people on the street. My work doesn't matter, and I just had a transformation. I was like, I need to make work that not only talks about the subject but actively does something to to change it, which is very difficult. And I'm still learning how to do that. Um, and that's essentially where I'm where I'm at in my life. In this bed, my first bed since being homeless.
0: So. I just want to talk about, really briefly, because you mentioned it, about making work around personal experience. Mm. I'll move on to talk about sort of the issues surrounding homelessness. But do you think it, do you you struggle to make it like that? Or do you think now that you've had that experience, it's the only way?
1: No, I realised that I've always made work that way. And I didn't re, so essentially the project that I'm now working on, uh, The Comfort of Things, is directly autobiographical. And by that I mean I'm on stage and I talk about my life as it happened. And I say, hello, I'm Andy. I'm not very good at remembering lines, so I have an auto cue. It's so, it's just me on stage. And it's the first time I've ever worked like that. Whereas normally what I have done is I've written those three characters in a room. But what I didn't realize is that those three characters were saying things that were relevant to my life. So the first work that I really made when I was about 16, it was, it was terrible, but it was a three-act, sort of maybe three-hour play around growing up gay and being introduced to gay bars and that being a particularly sort of negative outlook. Um,
0: we've all done the young, like, overly long plays. That we've oh, okay. I think mine was, like, about me kidnapping my boyfriend so that I could play Hamlet. Um, and that was like my early realization that I was a bit of an angry feminist <laughs> that just really wanted to get on stage and do Shakespeare,
1: yeah. Um, yeah, and so all of the work, and then the sort of work that I made at the same time as being homeless, throughout sort of the end of my undergraduate degree one was about um, mental health, it was about a woman who couldn't get out of bed um, because of depression, which is something that I wasn't dealing with at the time, but I had in the past, and I felt like it was very important in that performance essentially acted as a sort of letter to my mother to say hey when I was in college and I wasn't getting out of bed and you thought I was being lazy this is what was going on um yeah and so all of my work has been autobiographical but I guess now it's so clearly autobiographical Andrew Lee is a character in the performance rather than it just being about my life performed via proxy
0: Is it different with, like, the sort of politics surrounding the issue that you're then sort of having to go away and research? Because obviously what you experience Mm. is very different um, from, like, other experiences of sort of homelessness and and all those sort of...
1: I guess the way the performance originally started, so we're just about to enter our third stage of... Uh, for our final stage of development, hopefully, if um, Arts Council funding comes through. So the last two stages. The first one was twenty minutes, and it was just me talking about me, my situation to my peer group to try and explain what was going on in my life. And I realised that issue with that is that it was too much about me. Um, and I realised this is a subject which shouldn't be about me. It should be about other people. And I need to use my story as an entry point, and then it needs to be not about me. And so we created an hour that was that. Um, but then I realized that it was just my story again. Um, and it wasn't doing what it needed to do. And I needed to actually go out into the world and talk to other homeless people because their stories are vital to changing the landscape of homelessness because it's, currently it's been too self-centered and so if we get the funding we're working with stone pillow which is an amazing uh homeless charity here in chichester and pallant house gallery have also offered us some space their gallery in chichester and so we're going to be working with homeless people collecting their voices and their stories um and offering them out into the world in the same way that i've been putting my story out there up until this point
0: that's amazing that that that, I think, is a really nice way to look at pieces of work, especially if you're sort of inspired by politics as a driving force for your work, which I am personally. So it is, it is really like a balancing act of politics, personal, and, and sort of getting things out there. And I didn't realise until I was researching for this show, for this podcast, rather, not a show, because you can't see how glorious we look there's all kinds of jazzy hand gestures you're really missing and I also found myself nodding for quite a considerable amount of time through that which obviously you're not getting the joy of uh but it is there you can sort of anticipate my nodding if you like um but I didn't realize how quick the sort of steps to homelessness are. um They talk mm. about like austerity measures and how far it's sort of one two pages. Yeah, sort the, the sort of
1: common quote is either three or two paychecks away from homelessness. But I think I don't think that stands anymore. I think that's maybe the most common method. You, you know, you get ill, you can't work for two months, and then you're homeless. But mine was simply a letter through the door from the council anything is so common and it can be so quick that people don't see it coming um especially in sort of austerity britain people are used to having not a lot of money they're used to worrying about money so that actually that becomes their new normal and so when the 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 thing happens that drives them from being impoverished to homelessness it can be instantaneous and they might not see it coming because they're too busy focusing on not dropping off the radar that actually the thing that sets them off comes as quite curveball
0: yeah and that and i think the i mean i'm not sure it's not a great statistic for doing it in paychecks but i think that uh image is quite shocking and when i read it i was like oh i had no idea that anything could be a sort of Dramatic, or or in fact, actually, as li- little in drama as it's mm. such a sort of slight twist on your situation that can that can change it. So, um, sort of on that note, do you want to sort of explain because obviously our listeners don't necessarily know what your particular circumstance yeah, was nice. and what sort of sort of set off all this? Yeah,
1: it, I mean, it's also really interesting because it's something that I am dubious of how I tackle it in the show because i firmly uh believe that my circumstances also involve other people such as my landlady at the time um and so there's an ethical dilemma of how much i divulge because in my eyes she comes off as a bit of a villain um but that might not necessarily be true i view the world from my own perspective but then i think making autobiographic work it is my perspective um and so i try and I don't know. It... And
0: in this circumstance, certainly, even if she wasn't necessarily the sort of grand villain yeah. of like a piece, that is, in your experience, that's what led you to this point. Yeah, so I think it's it's difficult, but obviously you don't have to. No,
1: no. Well, I'll I'll go into it because I think it's interesting. I think it can happen to other people, and in fact, the reason it happened to me was I got caught in a loophole. So essentially, I lived in an annex on a rather wealthy lady's land. Um, and so we paid her our rent and our bills and everything. But we also, a fraction of our bills went towards the council tax for the land, which her house was on and our house was on because they were taxed as one. And that seemed all fair and that was it. We weren't getting a separate council tax bill. So that made sense. And then um, in the August, we moved in in the October and it was the next August and uni was about to start in September. We got a letter through the post saying that our property had been rebanded by the council and it was now a separate taxable property. And we were being taxed from the day that we moved in. And we thought, oh, OK, we don't have the money to pay that, but it's OK, because we've technically already paid it to our landlady. And so we, dropped, we went next door, knocked on the door, invited her over for tea, so that we checked through and we just asked, can we have that section of our rent backs that we can pay the council tax bill. Because if our council tax has risen by three grand or whatever it was, um, hers clearly has dropped because that's how it works. Um, and she said, and I quote this line, um that's not how it works. Um, and she kept the money. And it turns out that she was within her legal right to do so. Um, And so we were out by three grand, which was very much more than two paychecks worth. And we had to make the decision of whether we wanted to pay. We had three outgoing expenses, which we needed to take into consideration. This is me and my ex-partner who I lived with at the time. And that was our rent, our council tax and our living expenses. And we could only afford to pay two of them. Um, And so we chose to pay our council tax and our living expenses and we could no longer afford rent. And so my partner moved back to Devon with her family. I was just starting my third year at university and I didn't want to take a year out. Um, I wanted to continue education and plus student loan was going to be very, very invaluable to me. Um, And so we moved out, I think, at the end of October during the examination period for that performance of the woman who can get out of bed. Um, And I remember... The last conversation I had with my landlady, she said the, I think the most hurtful phrase that anyone has ever said to me my entire life. And she was in our home. We'd made a tea. We'd made cake because we were very, very nice tenants. And she said, you've learned a very expensive lesson, haven't you? And then I proceeded to sleep on safers for the next 10 months, um, which was the worst period of my life. And the thing that allowed me to escape from homelessness was um, student loan from my master's degree. I took a master's degree so that I could stop being homeless, and that was the only only way that I could do that, which was yeah, my situation. And so now I've been housed uh, just under 11 months, is how long I've been housed for, which, God, it seems a while ago now.
0: And I think some of the things we've talked about in the past that maybe don't occur to you is that, like, it isn't, it's not what everyone would associate with homelessness yes. as the original sort of idea of, of, which is more like sleeping rough. Yeah. Um But there are certain things that go, that are very similar on both sort of strains of, like, privacy and different things that, you know, don't necessarily occur
1: yeah, there's there's so many different categories of homelessness which aren't necessarily aware. And I come from a position where it's only in the last two years that I've learned anything of, of, of real factualness, which is not a word, about homelessness. Because before, I didn't care. I walked past people like they didn't exist. And to be fair, to a certain degree, I still do now because it's just how we are trained socially to deal with people. But when I was making the very, very first version of my show, uh, uh, a lecturer told me that I wasn't homeless, I was differently housed. And I thought, I have been so egotistical to, like, compare my life to rough sleepers. What an absolute arsehole I've been. And it completely changed my performance. Um, And I just did loads more research, really digging into the lives of real homeless people. And then I realised I was a real homeless person. I just wasn't on the street, and there are people in like the backs of wi- um, backs of cars, in women's shelters, people who sleep in their offices. They're all homeless because they don't have a home.
0: And things like um, there's government issues where you can be your family if you're made homeless. They put you in a B and B for extended periods and things like that, and it's still it's still homelessness. It's a different kind and different form, obviously, yeah. to allow people with young children still go to school and things like that but it still has its own difficulties
1: like the b&b situation is really interesting because it's very similar to my homelessness which was very very safe i was never going to starve in fact i had uh because of student loan and the fact that i wasn't paying out rent i had a nice bit of expendable income i didn't have enough to make rent don't get me wrong but like say if your rent is 350 pounds a month and you make you know 300 not enough to make rent but actually that's that's a decent amount to spend on food and go on nights out, so I was really comfortable. Um and you know, it's a sort of similar thing if you're a B and B. You're safe, you're going to be fed, your kids can sleep. But what people don't understand is actually the importance of of ownership, of of a space that is that is yours and no one else's. Um and it's why originally uh, my show was called 2020 which was about the dimensions of the storage unit where all of my stuff was um, and then I changed to I Am Here Now uh, because it was a reflective piece and just like, none of these names encapsulate what the core of the piece is because it's not about homelessness it's not about me, it's about something else and throughout the process I was reading uh, Daniel Miller's book The Comfort of Things and he is uh, uh, an anthropologist and his field of study is things it's stuff, he has a book called Stuff and he examines people's relations to things, whatever those things are, to clothes, to mobile phones. And in The Comfort of Things, it's a series of, I think, 30 interviews with just people on a London street. And he interviews them and he describes their homes. And and I realised, oh, that's what it's about. What I missed most of all when I was on sofas completely safe was really boring things like... Um, I carried around with me a ridiculous box of oils and spices because I love to cook. I'm a big cook. And in my old house, we cooked everything from scratch. And I didn't want to give that up being homeless. And so I was ridiculous. I'd carry around like, I'd buy my food in bulk because it was cheaper. And I'd do things like carry a 2.5 kg bag of potatoes around with me to uni because I couldn't store it anywhere. I thought that's just ridiculous. But it's because what I needed most of all was a sense of ownership, a sense of, owning of things because they plant you they make you feel secure and when you're homeless everything is in flux Mm.
0: and you owe a lot of these like little things and tropes to what you would suggest is like your personality like I do all the time there's certain things that if I was without and they're not necessarily like valuable or anything you just think and especially in a situation Mm. like that I can imagine that you just need something that you can go this is mine, actually, and it reminds me that I'm like this. This yeah. isn't just
1: yeah, like, this despite isn't despite
0: whatever's going mm. on. It's like a little anchor to the yeah.
1: Because for me, it was always my ukulele. I carry my ukulele around with me, and I justified it to myself because I was doing a a show at uni and it was was an opera and it required me to play the ukulele. But long before that show I had the ukulele on me and long afterwards I had it on me. And I was never in a position to play it except for that show. So I must have carried it around six, seven months where I didn't touch it. Um, But having it with me, I felt like I was a person who owned something. A ukulele, I'm an artist, I make music or whatever. Because I thought if I didn't have that then I'd just be a homeless person. I'd just be seen through the lens of my situation. And it's really easy to do that because in society, the standard, not that such a thing exists, is being housed. There is no term for having a house, but there is a term for not having one. You know, homelessness is a phrase that gets used a lot. Being housed, you know, nobody introduces themselves like, hi, I'm Andy Lee and I'm housed. It doesn't happen because that's the standard. And when it's so standard that it never gets brought up, being outside of that is incredibly difficult. A great example is the introduction of sort of cisgendered in the last few years as a phrase to describe people who accept the gender they were assigned at birth. Until that point, it was just, it didn't have a name because it didn't need one because it was the gold standard. And we need to realise that actually most things in life, there's no such thing. Um, Yeah, and so sort of becoming non-housed was very very difficult because it felt like i didn't belong anywhere
0: also i think there's a massive um stigma around uh, as an issue if you sort of read up if you type in homelessness which i did into sort of google or whatever your search engine (laughs) other search engines are available (laughs) um you you just get you know you obviously get things from the Daily Mail and The Sun and things from The Guardian and The Independent mm. and how we look and, and various other mm. outlets, or like be it, you know, Twitter and various sort of platforms. You just get very tunnel vision, I would say, um, on on the issue, surrounding the issue to sort of make this beautiful general wash mm-hmm. of what we think the issue is yeah. and what the problem is and i think it's like especially pertinent with things like um because i'm such a massive royalist um ha 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 um when they had megan's megan and ha- harry? harry yeah it's harry i mean <laughs> harry and william they're interchangeable for me i can never yeah um uh, and and they had the thing about taking the rough sleepers off the streets and yeah. clearing it so that they, you know, that it wouldn't spoil their wedding day, and then it sort of carried on this saga to be, oh well, they won't move off of the streets because they want to earn from yeah. this tourism, and and you do you get you get, and unfortunately, it's true of over quite a lot of um, these platforms, you get kind of one view. Yeah. Um, to the extent that we don't really see another that is not given to us as easily as as the sort mm. of mistruth or the very much stereotype of yeah. the situation.
1: Yeah, it, it's really difficult and it's really, really vast. The thing about homelessness and often things like... Um like drug addiction, which are often interchangeable, unfortunately, is that they're they're so vast and every single case is individual. And so treating it like it's an amorphous situation where one thing fits all, it doesn't because one, you know, say if there are 100,000 homeless people in Britain, I have no idea what the number is, but there's, for example, 100,000 homeless people, there are 100,000 different ways to get these people help. And that's really difficult because societally how we view them is really linked up in our sort of capitalist history and i am an attempting anti-capitalist a lot of that has come out of my um situation in homelessness um and there's sort of the keeping up the joneses and the american dream and whatever the english equivalent of that is the idea that if you work hard enough you can achieve anything is sort of weirdly gospel It's like that's the thing that runs our world.
0: What I really like about this, and this is a complete side note, is um, that we obviously do Mm -hmm. have a version of the American dream. Um, Weirdly, we kind of take... The piss out of the American dream, Uh, especially like if you see like a a film review Mm. for an American film, we're like, it's obviously a version of the American dream. (laughs) We're just like, yeah, we wouldn't call it the American, we wouldn't call it the English or the British dream, suckers. Yeah. But it is, there's still something that's still like... Oh, well, you're gonna mm. grow up, get married, have a house. Do, do, do I think I, it's one is, of those... it like, is it white picket fence sort of like I feel like that because that's, Cause that's another mean...
1: Americanism. I think the thing is is that because it's such a gold standard, you have not given it any Oh, name. I know
0: what it is. I know it oh, is. It? Surely it's the um an Englishman's home is his castle. Yeah, like that, that. That is it, and and we take the Mickey because it's kind of like it's kind of sarky because we all know we yeah. don't. Really um, have got, unless you're listening and have got a castle, in which case I apologise, your home is certainly a castle. Mine well, isn't. But it's it's just weird that we we sort of pretend that we're more realists in this country, but there's, I mean, there's still, a, a, as you say, like a standard, a normal, that yeah. we all sort of think, oh, well, I'm not hitting that, so... How is this working for
1: me? And it's like... And if that fits into the sort of capitalist matrix, the capitalist paradigm, whatever it is, there's a... You know, we've got our class system, bottom, top, and homeless people don't fit into that. They're not working class. They're not lower class. They're not even a class. They fall out of the system that this country runs by, and so they don't exist. And so that whole... If you think uh, if you work hard enough, you can achieve anything. Thing when homeless people enter that picture, we look at them as if they haven't tried, as if they've brought it on themselves, as if they didn't work hard enough to even get to working class, and that's why they're homeless, and that's why we look at them with scorn, with things like. Drug addiction. So, if there's a homeless person with a drug addiction, we look at them as like, oh, that's why they're homeless, because they're a drug addict. Not thinking that actually if you spend every day on the streets being completely ignored by everyone around you, then drugs are, is a form of escapism. And I mean, I'm a, you know, a student four years going. I've absolutely used drugs as escapism. I know many, many of my peers who have used drugs as for a good night out. But we don't look at them in the same kind of way that we look at those who are homeless who use it for escapism. Because addiction happens. And the problem with addiction is that, well, I mean, to be quite broad, what else have they got going for them? I've got a dissertation to write. I've got, you know, karaoke at the student bar. I've got friends that I can go and talk to. I've got books that I need to read. Rough sleepers have got that same stretch of of. Uh, path where they're going to sit and they're going to beg f- for change, and it's like we don't we we judge them by our standard rather than than their situation, which is a which is huge. and I've just been incredibly broad and I've been incredibly like stereotypical, but that is how people lots of people view a situation when it's much much more dynamic than that.
0: Well, the thing is, in a in a sort of podcast, and we do, and I will put some links to certain articles that I've mm. read or sort of referred to um in the link and it's something that we aren't in a show gonna cover mm. so talking in broad terms as horrible as it is is a better way to sort of try and talk about some of the key um issues surrounding it also the thing that bothers me with the uh, like you were saying like though you're not working hard enough and that's why you haven't um sorted it is is uh I'm loath to say this government, but I think it's, I think it is also mm. government in general. I'm not suggesting that it's just um, conservative governments. I think Labour governments aren't necessarily much better than any other government we might have in between. Mm. I don't think looking at it in a in a sort of, well, you know, you need to work hard out of this situation because I think once um, you are sleeping rough or you're, you know, in various states of homelessness that you are at a disadvantage and you're working up from not even, like, the bottom level, not even, like, ground level because you're working against the fact that you can't get a job because you need yeah. an address and you need all these other things to fit into place to do with health care and things like that and it's it is sort of these odds it's, it's kind of similar to um sort of unemployment levels when they say well, we just need to start here but Starting from any of these sort of points is incredibly difficult. Yeah, that like. And I don't think we have in place, and I, I'm not sure I have a suggestion, so I feel, I feel unable to suggest, but there seems to be no proper system other than these tickets that are given out to Portsmouth and Southampton to just move. Yeah. um people to different areas, but it doesn't seem that there's a proper system in place. Yeah, yet. the
1: the government systems which we rely on every day, things like the NHS, um, things like you know pensions, national insurance, all those kinds of stuff that we take for granted as being standards of this country, don't exist for homeless people. So a great example is is that I suffer with a, a long term mental health condition. I've had it for ten years. When I was homeless, I wasn't applicable for GP care. Um, And so I couldn't receive my mental health medication. Um, Another thing is that without an address, you actually lack one of the legal requirements you need to work in this country, which means when people say how many people should just get a job, they're actually legally not entitled to work. So there's just so many things um, in the way for them to, to climb over. So Without an address, you can't really get any form of identification. If you've lost everything and you lost your home, you've only got this bag on you. Like, It's really easy to lose your passport or your national insurance number if you don't remember it. And so getting into work is is really difficult.
0: Especially for me, who puts her national, national insurance number is inside my passport. So if I was ever to lose one, they'd both be gone in one fell swoop. Yeah. So I think once you've got rid of like certain amounts, it's sort of like, in a horrible sense, you barely... Like, your existence on the government yeah, structure... Yeah, you don't... You
1: don't it's exist. It's gone. Um, that's the thing, is that there were... Uh, there's a... I can't remember what the statistic was. I know that uh, homelessness has risen 169% since 2010, since the austerity measures came in. But I think around... I'm probably wildly misquoting, so if we can chuck a thing in here at the end or something, but um, about 300% of homeless people aren't recorded because they simply do not exist on the system. Um, and that is terrifying um, that they don't, that they just don't, then not only do they not exist in the eyes of the public who walk past them every day, but they don't exist in terms of the government who should be supporting um, the most vulnerable members of society. In fact, the only real way to get out of homelessness if a program doesn't exist. So say like a temporary housing programme that's run by Stone Pillow. They've just opened a new 24-hour housing service, which is bloody brilliant, but they can only take, I think it's about 12 people at a time. And those 12 people will be there for as long as it takes them to move from that accommodation into a place of their own. So unless a scheme like that exists, and if it does, still it's only 12 people, um, the only real way to get out is some form of sponsorship, uh, some person who is much, much better off offering you a sofa to stay on, or a job cash in hand, or or some form of financial injection. For me, it was my master's degree. The long, Once you escape homelessness, the battle's not over. Um, many, many, many people who become housed then fall back because the systems of support aren't there. And it's not something that people can do on their own. Um yeah and it's and it's difficult it's really really difficult and without the government's putting in those systems making it easier for them to re-enter the game of capitalism which just doesn't exist because it's too costly i think um to support these people when they're doing okay on the street essentially um is my personal completely uneducated un-in-the-know view
0: yeah, well, maybe maybe some government people might be listening, and they can tell us the actual. But it does feel very much when you're looking at this and in the statistics, and like like you're saying, in every article I read about it, they said they gave figures, and then I I mean I I did note them down, but they were essentially useless because in at the end of every figure they went, but well, we suspect there's much more. They we suspect yeah. there's that these aren't accurate, and it's like, hang on, you don't have an accurate view on the and it's not just one article where someone's been like oh i need to get this out i haven't looked at the statistics it's every article i read was like but well, we suspect it will be higher than this mm. and and that's baffling to me when we live in this age where and i know it's different mm. because it's obviously like i'm talking about like social platforms and that but you think with all this sort of wonderful technology, there's a little element of sarcasm as a, as a technophobe, but of all this wonderful technology, we think that we could keep, like, be aware of how many people yeah. there are in these sort of
1: I'd, I'd situations. i take situation. it's a very, very similar situation in terms of accurate numbers uh, that undocumented immigrants are in this country. Um or in any country, if they're undocumented, they're not accessing services, so they don't exist in the government sphere. And that's the problem, is that the government will only is only able to help people who exist. And many, many homeless people, especially if they don't access homeless services, especially if they've been on the streets for so long that actually, um, very similar thing with prisoners who've been in prison for so long, they don't know how to readjust. I found it bloody difficult. Um, There are so many homeless people who, once they become housed, sleep on the floor in their house because they can't get used to a bed. And if they don't exist, if the paperwork isn't there, if they're not accessing local services, which gives them a way to sort of re-register their lives because they don't want to or because they don't feel like those places are for them or they feel like they'll be judged or for whatever their reason is, um, then they just don't exist. And so the government has no impetus to help them because they don't even appear on the statistics, Um, And actually, you know, if they did magically solve the homeless crisis for those people that appear on paperwork, then, you know, there are zero homeless people in this country because the other people don't exist. So they're not on the statistics.
0: But the onus can't be, like we were saying earlier, it can't just be you've not worked hard enough, so we're not going to. I think there needs to be a bit more sort of going out of your way to check up on this problem and not assuming that. And I think that's the thing is that if people aren't necessarily making a fuss or like you Mm. have, like you've made something from it, but you've got the tools, you're at university. But if you don't have any uh, tangible way to make your voice heard or make your case... And I think that's the thing is, you know... If you think about the amount of times, and I'm very guilty of it myself, where I have probably walked past Mm -hmm. a rough sleeper and and not, uh, you know, connected with them, they don't get looked at by the majority of the public. How on earth can you expect that to be on them to make their own case when they've spent whatever percentage of their life not having even... Yeah. Eye-to-eye contact yeah. with other people It's, yeah. it's a ridiculous um, Weight to put on someone um, To sort of Come back against that And sort of change Your circumstance yeah.
1: There's only so long you can Fight for Before I was um, At a gig very very recently uh, Amanda Palmer at Brighton Fringe And it was amazing And there was just it was a song I'd never heard before and it was just a very, like, middle of the song line, really innocuous. It wasn't part of the chorus, but she said, it's amazing what people get used to. And it broke me, because I realised in many, many situations in my life how much I'd learned to to take on. And with homeless people, there's only so much that you can take on before they give up and they stop trying to re-engage with the society because society has no interest in them. Um, one of the interesting... Things you brought up with about people connecting with them is sort of what I aim to do in the show. Is that at the second stage of R and D, once we finished that, and I realised it was too much about me, and I realised the show was talking about homelessness without actually doing anything. I asked myself the question: What was the point in the show? Not the show that existed, but what was the point in the show that I wanted to be there? And it was to systematically remove the barriers that people put in place to stop them from helping homeless people and give them the tools they can uh, in which they can help. So a great example is connecting with homeless people is difficult. Even me, with all of my history with homelessness, still walk past rough sleepers because I just don't know how to speak their language. And it's like, actually, I don't need to know how to speak their language. I just need to talk to them as a human being because that's what they are. And don't get me wrong, I fail on that all of the time. And things like um, a part of the show is we hand out uh, homeless packs. And how we do that is we give them to the audience. As part of the climax of the show, we say, this is an object for which has no value for you. Its economic value is £28 it costs us to make a pack. doesn't matter. This has no economic value for you, but to someone who needs it, it means the world, so give it to them, but also talk to them. and I say like if you can listen to me waffle on for an hour about my life, about homelessness, about the world in general, you can listen to them for an hour and just ask them their name, ask them who they are, who they, what they used to do for a job, what they'd like to do for a job, just things that you'd ask a new person that you'd meet because they're they're people who've just had a difficult time. Um, one of the examples I use in the show is a a particular homeless person who used to live in Chichester, they're now housed, was um, a man who used to live on an pass near my house. He was a surgeon at the hospital and he would, and like, I think his situation was like a divorce, gone, whatever, and he'd lost his house. And so he would go to work, he'd shower, he'd eat there, he'd buy food from the canteen he'd operate on people whatever and then he'd sleep in the underpass and he was only there for sort of three or four months but people get really shocked that the idea of an incredibly clearly well educated clearly hard-working person it can happen to them it's like well i was a hard-working student um and it happened to me it can happen to anyone for any reason and so looking at you know homeless person a over there and thinking the very worst thinking drug addict thinking you know he probably drinks beer all the time and smokes weed all the time and just begs money and steals things it's like that's probably not true could be a teacher it, he you know used to teach and will probably go back to teaching again he's just hit a really difficult period and it's training yourself to think differently to the way that society makes you think about it
0: i i read an article by a guy who's released a book who was um think, 25 years, uh, mm. was sort of sleeping. I don't know if it was necessarily, not all rough sleeping from what I've read, um, that he sort of chose this sort of existence to an extent uh, or didn't go back mm. into being housed when the opportunity was given, um, called Gregory P. Smith. And he's written a book called Out of the Forest, and it talks about... Um, all these sort of different levels. And he, someone asked him what they should do if they come across someone who's sort of sleeping rough. And his response was, you know, even if you can't change the circumstance of this person, you just need to treat them like they're a person. Yeah. Because so much of their existence is they're, they're ignored. It, mm-hmm. it is like they don't exist. And so it, it's breaking stigmas and just... Seeing people in a different light, which I think really does need to happen, um, before any great shift in policy, like even if it was a bigger amount of people Mm -hmm. and not just like the liberal metropolitan elite that sort of you know take on a cause, it's just changing behavior to then sort of
1: improve it needs to be, it needs to be. Society-wide, we need to change how we view homeless people, and that's how policy will change. You know, a good comparable example would be sort of like the LGBT plus community, how they were viewed and how they are was systematic. It was cultural. It was societal, and it was a massive shift over many, many years. Um, and that same thing needs to happen with with homeless people and rough But I sleepers. think it does
0: bring us back to our earlier thing in that. It's going to have to be, I think, with other like society groups, it kind of is easier because like we're talking again about um, people finding a voice and finding um, and sort of organizing um, on a bigger scale. Mm. And I think if you think about that sort of struggle within the sort of homeless, rough sleeping community you've got is there's a lot of stigmas attached to them. There's less access to um, these platforms that we yeah. can access yeah, on our phone, but also there's a lot of um, sort of like it's again it's a stigma, but there's a sort of element of pride is that if you've gone through this, even if you've gone and and lived in a B and B because you couldn't, a lot of people might. Uh, won't be open to talk to yeah. change that and to associate uh, with that sort of darker period we're yeah, in it, the theater industry kind of better at talking about yeah, versions of things in our lives there's
1: a lot of shame attached to it and I felt very ashamed when I was homeless but then I sort of realized that actually this didn't happen because of me and I won't let that I won't let that go I will tell people that I'm just, I'm the same person. I I, you know, I had the value of being at university for two years before it happened. So everyone around me knew I was the same Andy Lee. I made the same kind of jokes. I was, you know, made the same sort of similar kind of work that I had been making. Nothing had changed except the fact that I didn't have a house. Um, and that was a, a fundamental shift because it, yeah, it, it's so difficult because they don't have a, a platform to voice their opinion because they are ignored. So it is Systematic, and it's within the sort of capitalist structures that they don't they don't fit in. They don't fit in the system that this country runs off. And I don't know if that can be changed. Uh, there's a great quote, and it's normally attributed to Frederick Jameson or or Žižek, or um, but I know it's mentioned in Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, and he says that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. And I think that is so true in that because homelessness is so wrapped up in neoliberal capitalism and the massive negative effects of the capitalist system, which only benefit 1% and it fools you know, a good 95% into thinking they're being benefited when they're not. Um, but because the, you know, the homeless groups fall out of that, um, they don't, they're not going to be saved they're not going to be helped until the idea of someone's economic value being intrinsic to what help they deserve um disappears because that's why no one likes to think of the idea of being homeless with being a rough sleeper um being on sofas is not being on the street because I've got money and I've got food and I've got friends and it and it's there's a class system within the homeless structure and you know, uh, women of abusive situations who live in a in a women's shelter or who are being housed in a women's shelter, they are also homeless but that's not necessarily where they position themselves and business people who who sleep in their offices because of some sort of upset in their housing situation they don't view themselves as homeless because there's a massive stigma to it. So there's a weird class structure within the homeless community itself. And I think it's about bridging the gap. It's about realising that homeless people are people. And it's very, very difficult to do that in the systems that are in place. Um, Part of the show, or or part of the making of the show, is that we're doing a workshop with uh, Pallant House Gallery, where we're going into Stone Pillow and we're getting their clients to make artifacts to make artworks to make writings or whatever and we're going to display them in one of the galleries at pallant house um as if they are just your regular kind of works of art they've got a virginia wolf exhibition on at the moment which is amazing you should definitely go and check that out um but they'll do it as if it's an exhibition of of, of virginia Woolf, and it's just an exhibition of local artists and their homeless people and hopefully the idea is is that the wealthier clientele of 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 this of this gallery will see these people as as artists rather than homeless people i like to be seen as an artist rather than a young person or a bisexual person like i like the identifier as artist um and so actually to when i was homeless to be seen as an artist not a homeless person was also really important to To myself and so to see them as something else Something other than just timeless I think is integral for us Bridging that gap And
0: connecting It's kind of like going back to the beginning And talking about your things that make you you Mm -hmm. The title that makes you you And takes away another title That you don't necessarily want I can see the appeal of that Um, That sounds amazing So when the details of that are mm. sorted. We'll put some links up and put it onto our website as well because you'll oh, want to yeah. catch that as I do. Thank you and very re- much. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty much it. All that remains for me to really ask <laughs> is, <laughs> is, um, you know, the very tricky question is how many pillows is too many pillows?
1: Uh, see, uh, I... I suffer from the fact that I've still not got used to sleeping in a bed. And so my number of pillows uh, drastically changes all the time. So I have access to five pillows, which will sometimes be in my bed. Sometimes Teresy. I'll sleep without pillows. Sometimes I'll sleep with pillows in my arms or in between my legs. Sometimes I'll stack all four on top of each other. Like I, I, I don't
0: want to hear about that. <laughs> I,
1: I still have yet to learn how to sleep in a bed again, which is the saddest thing. This is now ten months in. So many, many pillows. Sometimes none. <laughs>
0: well, I feel there's an answer in that to please everyone. <laughs> that's,
1: the thing, that's the thing. Is I like to I like to try and hit all all focus groups, all <laughs> groups in the arts council's thirteen key key audiences.
0: I don't think pillow numbers have a group. If I'm totally honest, but.
1: I'm pretty sure urban arts eclectic prefer four, so I've struck them.
0: <laughs> I'm shaking my head. I know I know that you can't see it, but it's really furiously shaking my head at the idea of four whole pillows. I don't even know what you'd do with them. How many pillows do you have? One, half empty. <laughs> like, <laughs> mostly not there. That's my ideal, is mostly feeling the sort of um, coils of the mattress poke through the, like, three feathers left in the pillow. Amazing. perfect,
1: Amazing.
0: So, sleep well, everyone, and uh, thanks for listening. Bye.
1: Bye.